what did you think of this this rate hike? Expected, I mean, like what did, you know, like because banks were collapsing, and so it was a little bit of like, are they going to pause? Are they going to continue? Like, what are your thoughts there? I mean, it's been a really crazy week. <laughs> The last the last ten days or whatever, right? We went from expectations like clear expectations of a fifty basis point hike because inflation was still not doing its thing to like coordinated actions from central banks um, because you know to to shore up liquidity in the global system. Um, it was a really insane transition across the week. I wasn't surprised at the hike. I think that the Fed did what it said it was going to do. And it is, I mean, the Fed has been all about messaging for years now, right? It's been all about saying what it's going to do and then doing it. And there's this whole thing about credibility, right? That we need to be able to believe in, which is ironic because the Fed is supposed to also respond to, you know, current situations and those things happen to change. But anyways, because they said they were going to hike and they're so laser focused on inflation, they had to hike because inflation, to be tr- fair, is not tamed. But, you know, is taming inflation the only goal? Uh, Not necessarily. Should we perhaps wait and see what 400 basis points of rate hikes in an unprecedentedly short period of time is doing to the global financial system? I would say yes, but that's not what they did. (laughs) Yeah, I had a a guest on Sidney Himmel, and he's kind of... um a ma- big mm. macro guy. He can go back to centuries ago and talk about the history of the economy and markets. And it's fascinating, Gwen, because a buddy of mine who's listening actually put together a uh, gold-silver thesis last summer. He led the way on that. I was just kind of uh, helping out, getting you know, helping out where I could. And I, and so we were going to buy some gold and silver stocks and some ETFs. And I said, you know what? We're, let's go meet Sydney because he's got a different. He's kind of seeing that the Fed is going to increase increase rates, and they already had at that point. But he was like, "No, they're not going to okay. they're not going to stop, Carl. This the benchmark is going to like four percent." Mm-hmm. And I thought, I, I'll be honest, at that point, I was like, "No." And of course, this is this was good for, or sorry, this was bad for our thesis because rates going up, right? Yeah, U.S. dollar strengthening. Yeah. So I thought, let's go let's go meet Sydney, and he he was bang on, and he kind of convinced us, like, well, like he convinced me, anyways, to to you know see that the the rates were going to come i still bought a silver etf and a gold etf because i think this is when it went down to like 16 1700 so okay, i got lucky okay. I, I mean i didn't get it at the low but i was maybe like i'd say five to eight percent off the low and Not? and then the and then so it went up from there because the market was like okay you went up this high they um but what are you going to do now so the price of you know yeah. looking market the the price of gold and silver started popping back up on a potential pause and the bond market was kind of showing us that there might maybe would be some rate or a pause and a rate decrease by the end of 2023 so I think gold and silver started coming back up but um, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay enough of the small talk we're uh, we're not that it's not <laughs> important or relevant but. We are here today to yep. discuss uh, how to build a mining portfolio, and I think this is a great space to have with you because it was only a couple months ago, uh, if that, that we had a morning drive. It was nice catching up with you, we talked a lot about a lot of things, but one of the things I said to you was, what did we not cover? And you're like, well, we can talk about how to build a mining portfolio. And I was like, yes, we could. So here we are. Yes. <laughs> I love it. So floor is yours. You kind of take us, uh, navigate the waters. 
you know, I'll, I'll just, I'm not going to interrupt you. Uh, we'll see if questions come in and I'm uh, just kind of, well, maybe if I have some good questions, I think I'll just, I'll stop and ask you, but a couple lot of follow-ups, but go ahead, lead the way. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the opportunity and hi to everyone who's listening. Uh, certainly appreciate your time and, and love to chat with anyone who's interested in the, the mining space, the opportunity that's ahead in the mining space and wants to learn about it. That's, that's what I do is I, I try to help people navigate those waters. So how to build a mining portfolio? Well, uh, I think I have to start fairly big picture and then I'll, I'll get more um, resolution. I'll get more clear, like uh, more detail um, as, as we proceed here. But I guess you have to start with why or when to build a mining portfolio. And I think um, the when is the when is always the big picture, right? That's the thesis. That's like what you were just saying. Should you bought ETF, uh, the gold ETF um, a year ago when you were thinking that the that rates were not going to go up as high as they were and therefore the gold argument was stronger and, and your friends in me um, pointed you uh, correctly uh, that, uh, that that theory was wrong. So you have to start with are metals going anywhere, right? Because metals are have very clear bull and bear markets. And if you enter at the wrong time, it doesn't matter in the slightest what a good stock picker you might be. If the overall tide is not in your favor, you will not win. There are a few exceptions. A new discovery can perform no matter the market. But in general, and especially for lower risk investors in the space, so those who aren't trying to pick the, the explorers that are going to make the big discovery, that's almost the hardest thing to do. For those who are lower risk, who are really getting exposure to metals, then you need to be doing it at a time when metal prices are, when, are bullish. And so is that the case right now? Well, I would say that it is very strongly so for gold right now. And this is everything that we've been experiencing over the last two weeks, right? The Silicon Valley Bank, these bank failures are, I believe, the canary in the coal mine. They are the first signs of the turmoil that is to come from this unprecedented rate hike cycle, that the impacts of which are only just starting to hit home. Right, you got to pay the piper at some point, and we hadn't. We'd had this period of surprising strength, but that's just because it takes time for those rate hikes to work their way through the through the cycle or through the system. And so, as uncertainty increases, which really happened over the last two weeks with these bank failures and everybody wondering what's what's next, is something next? Um, gold performs. Gold is a classic hedge. Gold performs in recessions because it is a hedge. Um, so gold, I think, is set up to do very well over the next little while. So I think the argument for gold is present now. The argument for base metals is not quite here yet. Um, it is a very bullish argument, given supply demand structures over the medium term. And really, that's there's two reasons for that. Well, there's one supply and one's demand. Um, <laughs> on the supply side, there haven't been a lot of new mines built over the last decade. Investors haven't been interested in mines. Management teams and mining companies have been very conservative. They overbuilt and made poor decisions in the last bull market for metals, which ended in 2012. And so for the last decade, they have been actively conservative. And that means not focused on expanding production. So investors haven't been interested. Management haven't been interested. And permitting new mines keeps getting harder. So for those three reasons, we have not had enough mines built 
to just meet demand. But then on the demand side, it also keeps increasing. And that's really because of the green transition. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm not going to dive into this in detail, but I think it's pretty well understood that most green transitions increase metal demand. If you compare an electric vehicle to a combustion car, if you compare, you know, the amount of metal that's needed to generate, uh, you know, electricity, a unit of electricity from a wind turbine or from a solar cell versus from a fossil fuel setup, the the renewable versions require a lot more metal. So metals demand is very high. It keeps rising. Meanwhile, supply has been dropping and will continue to drop because it takes a long time to build a new mine. So the supply demand setup for metals is very strong, but nobody buys metals or miners when there's a recession coming. And so uh, my premise is that we have to get through this storm. I don't know how long, I don't know when the storm will really hit. I don't know how long it will last, but there will be downside for metals in the storm because people, like I say, do investors do not buy industrial growth when there's a recession coming. Once we get to through, just through the recession, investors love to ride real assets out of a recession. And so I, especially real assets with bullish supply demand fundamentals. So I think metals are set up to do exceedingly well once we get through this pending storm, but we do need to get to the other side of it before the market will really kick off. So that's the overall setup for the space in brief at this exact moment. Gold now, base metals, and I lump silver in with base metals. I actually lump platinum, palladium, and silver all in with base metals because they're primarily industrially used. Um, those are the, the opportunities for those will present at their best once we just get through the other side of this recession. So that's the premise. You got to have the right premise before you even start thinking about building a mining portfolio. Once you've decided that this is the time and that you do want to do this, I mean, we can talk about gold right now because I think that that is the opportunity that exists right now. Then you have to decide what you want as an individual because there's a lot of different ways to build a mining portfolio. There's a lot of different ways to have exposure to metals. Um, the key questions that I always think people should ask when they are approaching this are how much risk do you want to take on how and how much time do you want to spend on your mining portfolio and how much do you feel like learning about mining and those things are actually all very closely connected if you want to take on a lot of risk you're going to need to spend time with your mining portfolio and you're going to need to learn quite a bit for that risk to make sense so if you like risk then the other things go hand in hand with risk if you don't feel like learning a huge amount about metals, that's okay. If you don't feel like spending a lot of time with your mining portfolio, that's also okay. There are great ways to build a mining portfolio that don't require constant attention or that much knowledge um, to be successful, assuming the tide, the metals tide is moving in your favor. So that's the starting point. Um, ask yourself those questions. And so now I'll just sort of start at one end of that spectrum, the low risk, not a ton of time, not much knowledge end of the spectrum, and talk about how to build a mining portfolio there. And then we can move over to the medium and then the high risk time knowledge parts of the spectrum 
uh, sequentially. So if you don't, if you see that there's an opportunity ahead in mining, so right now, like I say, I think that opportunity is here for gold. And I think once we get to the other side of the recession, that opportunity will be here for copper and nickel and uranium and um, silver. I think that opportunity will be very clear for those metals on the other side of this recession. So if you think that the moment is here and you want to build a mining portfolio, but you don't want to have to check in with that portfolio on a daily, weekly, heck, even monthly basis, um, and you don't want to have to learn very much at all about mining, um, and you don't want to take on a lot of risk in positioning for the metals opportunity that you see, that you understand is happening, then, I mean, it's a bit of a boring answer, but you really just buy some of the biggest players in the space. What's funny about the gold space is that the biggest players aren't that big relative to other um, investment arenas. Like if you compare the biggest gold miners in the world, which are Newmont and Barrick, they're like, uh, they're, they're, they're nothing compared to, you know, the fangs of the world, big tech stocks, and let alone oil giants or any pharmaceutical companies. The gold companies of the world are teeny, but nonetheless, they are the biggest players in the space. And the reason that you, you can either buy a few of those large gold mining companies, or you can certainly buy uh, an ETF old, of gold mining companies like the GDX which is the Vanek Gold Miners Index of major gold miners, or there's a slightly, there's a junior version of that, which is just the slightly smaller gold miners um, ETF. Of course, the reason to buy a fund is simply that it reduces your exposure to any one company, which should reduce your risk by spreading uh, the risk that of a failed operation or a misstep um, across a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of players within your portfolio, within that fund. Now, the reason that I, so I say that there's opportunity in gold, and then I immediately went to saying buy gold miners, you can of course buy gold, the metal or exposure to gold, the metal through, um, a gold backed ETF. Those are also options. But if you are truly bullish on the metal, um, and you're looking to position, then you probably want leverage to work in your favor. And here, like the basic description of leverage in the mining space is, okay, so say a gold miner can produce an ounce of gold for $1,000. And gold, I'm just making up numbers right now, and gold is trading at $1,800. It's more than that today, but these are just numbers, right? So right now they have an $800 per ounce um, uh, profit. If gold goes up to $2,200 an ounce and their costs do not change significantly, which is a reasonable presumption, I'm sure there's inflation and whatever, like, again, this is, this is an, a theoretical um, uh, exercise, then they are, then if you were just exposed to the price of gold, you're only getting exposure to a move from $1,800 to $2,200. But if you're exposed to the miners, you're getting exposure to an increase in profit from 800 or from, what did I say? Yeah, $800 to $1,200, right? So a $400 move in the price of gold is small percentage-wise for the price of gold, but it is large percentage-wise for the profit that a mining company makes. And since 
mining companies, like most companies, are valued based on their profits. That means that you get multiples of the multiples of benefit from the from a move in the price of gold if you invest in the miners. So that's why I immediately went to talking about the miners. Like I said, you absolutely can invest just in the price of gold. And if you're if you like that, there's no reason to not have some exposure to physical gold and some exposure to gold miners. But um, that's why I go straight to the I'm miners. I'm going to ask you one question since we have Rick Rule listening, and I've been bugging him to come on a little bit. So maybe he's just seeing if uh, how these spaces work. But when it comes okay. to buying gold, um, would you maybe you would you're probably going to say both? But would you buy physical gold over say buying a Sprott? Uh, gold trust? I mean, that really depends on you as a person. I, I, I own both. Um, and because my passion, my expertise is all about the mining space, I am, I will admit, biased to miners. And so I actually spend less time thinking about the details of how uh, the the pros and cons of the different ways of owning physical gold than others do. There's lots of others out there who could, I'm sure, spend the next hour debating the various merits and drawbacks of owning your own physical versus owning an ETF. I own some of both. Um, the The ETF is easy, uh, easy, liquid, tradable, um, and there's been some interesting. Well, it doesn't really, it doesn't apply to. Um, gold, but there's been some interesting experiences, examples is the word I was looking for, um, in the mining space of late, particularly with uranium, of the impact that an ETF, a fund, a physical, a physically, a physical commodity backed fund can have on the market. So, um, so there's a bit of a divergence, but I think it's an interesting sort of example. Um, uranium is, there was no way for there was no good way for investors to have exposure to the price of uranium until Sprott set up uh, a, a fund for precisely that purpose, and um, investors loved it. They piled in, and so that's that doesn't apply to gold. Like I say, with uranium, it's not like you can buy physical uranium and stick it in your basement. So those who wanted exposure to uranium needed a way to do it, and they piled in. But what's interesting is when you're talking about a small commodity spaces. The fact that the fund then had to go out and buy a bunch of uranium actually juiced the, the price of the commodity itself. The funds buying sopped up supply in the market and actually perpetuated its own success. Um, so funds are really interesting entities in the space, um, whether you're talking about you know funds of miners and how they're buying and selling and rebalancing impact share prices. Um, whether you're talking about the scale, how gold miners are so tiny and therefore they're not contenders for big market indexes and big market funds. And that actually is hurts the liquidity in our business and hurts the scale. And therefore, that's one of the reasons that gold miners want to be larger scale. Funds have all kinds of interesting things. I know that's not really what you asked me about, but that's where my mind went. So I'm just uh, talking about it anyways. As for physical versus funds, it's really a personal choice. Um, and, and I, I say that both, both work well, 
Um, and it's, it's, it's up to the individual if, if that, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, I, I get it hundred percent. I think I've had some friends lately, um, you know, starting to understand what's going on with going back to the very beginning of the spaces with the banks, you can't raise interest rates that, that high, that fast without, without having cracks in the system. Uh, it's obvious that there was leveraged bonds with, uh, at the wrong duration and this is causing a lot yeah. of issues. So people are figuring it out. I mean, I'm not going to take us in the crypto space here, but 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 at the end of the day, we under we crypto people their narrative is being justified right now. The same thing for the non you know the traditional gold uh, investor, someone who wants to store their wealth there. I think a lot of people's expectations get out of whack when they buy a gold producer. I'm not even talking about a junior, just a gold producer, and they're like, well, you know, not it's not really moving. It's like, listen, gold in a nutshell is for mostly for people to just store their wealth because they don't trust the traditional banking system and also printing money. So if you have a dollar and you want it to remain its purchasing power, you essentially buy gold. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. And it's a really important point right now because it explains why the gold stocks, like you say, people get annoyed that the gold miner doesn't move as much as they want it to or as soon as they want it to. And a big reason for that is that those the forces don't line up exactly. They don't, they aren't synchronous by which I mean people who are figuring things out the way you put it and are interested in buying gold now are buying gold, but that doesn't mean that they currently have as much interest in buying stocks because it's the system, right? That they're worried about the system. So they're worried about runs on the stock market run. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And like, Three years ago, four years ago, when I was making content with people like yourself, explaining these things to the generalists was a little bit hard because they didn't really even understand mm-hmm. inflation, right? Now it's like right. it's not that difficult to explain, hey, if you had a dollar four years ago and a dollar now, do yeah. you see where your purchasing power has gone down and you can't buy this, that, and the third? So it's like it's a very easy time to insert gold yeah. and say, so if you had that dollar, that fiat dollar, and it was owned in gold, you'd still probably have the same purchasing power or more. You got to get let time do its thing there. I think I digress though, because if I, this is one thing <laughs> and I don't have the, the answer here, um, Gwen, so maybe you can tell me if I wanted to buy an ounce of gold right now, like physical gold mm-hmm. um, at my local mm. dealer, pretty reputable place. I don't remember what the premium is, but there's a pretty good premium on that, on that ounce of gold. No. There is. And I, again, I, I haven't even looked of late at what that is because I, I look at the spot price of gold and I, I'm satisfied with my current physical gold holding. So I don't actually know. But yes, that is something to pay attention to. And that is something that ebbs and flows a lot with panic. Yes. Really. People are- As panic ramps up, those premiums ramp up because the physical traders just can't get, it's just a, a physical supply demand thing, right? They can't get it in their hands as quickly as they need when the panic sets in and a whole bunch of people want to buy. So if you are interested in gold and you and you see that these banking issues are the canary in the coal mine and that something is building, you can watch there's there's easy websites to find where you can see what the premia yeah. are on gold and you can uh you can see when it's when it spikes and uh and you can wait for, you know, a pause in the panic uh to go out and and make that Simple supply or simple economics, right? On that side, supply demand. Exactly. But now, what about the Sprott Trust? If you want to, if you want to get exposure to physical without storing it, but and you are, you know, technically you're putting it into the into that system in the stock market, I guess. But it's supposed to be backed by gold. Are you paying a premium? 
if you buy the Sprott Trust? Is there still a premium involved in that? Uh, not in the same. Uh, there's a there's there's just the management fee that there is involved in any such ETF, um, ETF. but it is uh, but it is less than <clears throat> excuse me the premium that you would pay to buy physical. And importantly, with the Sprott trusts, they do hold those. They they don't um, trade out those ounces of gold that they hold for the trust. Like they they yeah, own I mean- it. So there's different structures of physical backed yes. ETF, and the Sprout ones I like because they taking supply. They keep their, they, yeah, they hold it in their vault and they don't double yeah, trade. Yeah, they're it. not leveraging it. So, like the banking system, <laughs> funny enough. So traditional yes. uh, gold <laughs> <Exactly>. gold <laughs> investors or people that are storing their wealth will love that product because not only they're they're not paying the premium, and I'm not trying to sell it. I don't own it, but I've looked at it. So you're not paying that big premium. Who cares about the management fee? They're storing it. And then they're also backing yeah. you. Like, literally, I got your back. We're going to grab this stuff. We're going to hold it. We're going to take this. We're going to take it off the uh, uh, supply. And yeah, okay, for sure. so I, yeah, I should, maybe some, someone should send me a check for that one. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good product, right? Again, not advice and I don't own it, but I, I'm looking at it and I like it. Um, let me, let me uh, hand the floor back to you. Yeah. Oh, well, well, thanks. And I mean, Sprott, um, yeah, Sprott has several physical back ETFs. They, they, they have been launching several new ones of late as well to give um, exposure to various commodities important in the green transition. Um, so yeah, a really cool set of ETFs there um, for anyone who's interested in the mining space and the commodities and mining space. They've got a lot of, they've got a lot of good products there um, that are worth You could send an invoice to them now too. Cause I know I saw the, I saw, right? That's, I, just want to get I saw the nickel, just, the nickel <laughs> one they just launched like yesterday or today or something. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So um, so that's sort of the low risk end of the spectrum is I would say don't just go for exposure to the metal. If you're bullish on the space, um, it's worth considering the miners as well. I want to expand a little bit on that comment that I made about how the moves don't happen synchronously. Um, what I mean by that is right now, gold has gained nicely it's gained nine percent in a few in the last two weeks roughly um and it's because of the panic over the banking failures right the miners have moved up as well they haven't moved up uh perhaps quite as much as leverage suggests they should but that is because everybody worries that if a recession hits tomorrow and causes a market moment right a slide a, a whatever the word ends up being that you do the baby in the bathwater thing, right? That gold miners get sold alongside Amazon and, uh, you know, big pharma and whatever that people just sell because they're in a panic about a stock market crash, slide, whatever the thing is. And so that has, that subdues interest. That is, I think, subduing interest in gold miners versus the metal right now because that recession shadow is dark, right? That's the thing. And anybody who's interested in gold is by definition, very aware of that recession shadow, right? I think there's other people out there who aren't as interested, who aren't as aware of the recession risk. Um, that this, that's not the, the kind of thing that they're thinking about. Fair enough. But anybody who's buying gold is very aware of that recession risk. And so they are going to be cautious about adding stocks in general right now because of fear about what might happen 
to any stocks if we have a bad moment in the market. So um, I think buying physical gold right now or exposure to physical gold makes sense. While I think that there is some risk for gold miners in this pending storm, I don't think it's dramatic because I think the price of gold is going to be very well supported through this. So I, I do think that you could step into miners right now as well. But sort of the way that you said, maybe don't expect them to perform perfectly tomorrow because of this shadow that's that's hanging over everything. But as we move through this recession, and then especially as we move out the other side of it, gold is known and has demonstrated its ability to rise out of recessions first, like fastest and strongest out of almost all sectors. <clears throat> so when the recession hits, people get scared. And then as soon as they're like, okay, maybe things are getting better, they buy gold. And gold, I mean, if you look at the 2020, the COVID crash, if you look at the great financial crisis, you can go back and look at lots of recessions and gold just ramps up out of a recession um, or out of a stock market crash um, in, in, a, in a pretty impressive way. So if you want lower risk exposure, I think you can go for miners, you can go for ETFs with miners, and you can get exposure to physical. Now, if we move across that spectrum that I described at first, then you move into the middle of the spectrum, which is maybe you want to take on a bit more risk. And of course, you do that because of the potential for return. And with that, maybe you want to learn a bit more and spend a little bit more time um, paying attention to your portfolio. If you want to do that, then you start to step into all of the companies in the gold space that aren't major producers. And those two, uh, those are um, developer, single asset operators, which I, are not major producers. They're producers who have like one mine or maybe two small mines, but they're small operators. They're Where does the, Equinox uh, land on the spectrum? Well, they're, well, I'm trying to keep it sort of simple, but they're, they're, a, they're a smaller producer, a mid-tier producer. So there's big, big producers. There's the Barracks and the Newmonts and the Agnicos. There's the big producers. Then there's the middle producers. Then there's the small producers. Then there's the builders. And then there's the explorers is how you can sort of batch them out. Um, and Equinox is, is in the middle of the producer spectrum. Um, and so if you want to have a little bit more upside opportunity in your portfolio, take on a little bit more risk, have a little bit more upside opportunity, then you move down the food chain, right? So you get maybe one or two of the small operators, single asset operators who have the potential be, to be taken out, right? Maybe they have only one mine, but it's a good mine that maybe a bigger operator is going to want as this market picks up steam. Maybe you add that to your, um, to your portfolio because it has that, it should perform alongside gold. It should give you the leverage that gold gives. So it should, it should do all those things, but it has the added potential to get taken out for some lovely premium, 60%, 100%, depending on the market, whatever it might be. And that would obviously be fantastic. And you can go a little bit further down the food chain again and look at the, the ones who are building new mines. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. I started talking at the beginning about how supply for metals is insufficient. 
Now, supply demand for gold is is a whole is a more of a theoretical argument. It's not like we like all the gold we've ever mined still exists, so it's not the same as supply demand for copper or lithium. But nonetheless, co- uh, gold production we we still haven't been building new gold mines, and so. And for for exactly the same reasons that we haven't been building new copper mines, management teams have been conservative, investors have not been particularly interested, and permitting timelines keep, keep getting more and more arduous, permitting processes. And so any um, good, large gold deposit that has that has moved along the pathway towards production um, – through this sideways difficult market over the last 10 years, there's not a lot of them. There's not a lot of big, good assets that have moved their way towards production um, during this not this decade during in which investors have not been particularly interested in the space. And so when miners need new mines, because they haven't been building them, and there's not very many um, up-and-coming mines available for purchase, well, those up-and-coming mines that might be available for purchase become pretty interesting to a lot of potential buyers. And so there's a there's an opportunity there to choose, develop, to buy development projects that have the characteristics that make them exciting for big producers. So they maybe they're the biggest asset. Some of the they're going to they're going to turn into big mines. They're fairly simple. Um, and, and simple can refer to how the, how the my, um, uh, rock is pulled out of the ground, how the metal is extracted from the rock, and also how the, where the mine is set up. Is it sort of like, does it take, you know, 200 kilometers of new road and bridges over canyons to get there? Are there water supply issues? Are there social issues with the neighbors, right? Like, or is it a simple setup? Is it, you know, hydropower? with a transmission line that crosses the project and a highway going nearby and, and good local support. And it's an open pit mine, right? Is it, is it fairly straightforward? If there's a, the assets that are showing the opportunity to be big mines that are fairly simple um, and that are permitted, there's not very many of those out there. So those ones have pretty good takeout potential, assuming this gold market gets going. So those are the kind of, I mean, there is a bit more risk in those. A mine build can absolutely go sideways. That's why it is a bit more risky. But if it works, it could work much better for your portfolio than just a gold mining company, right? Because of this possibility. And if it's a good, good mine, if, it, if you make a good pick, maybe a strong possibility that the asset will get bought out over the next few years while um, when gold majors start competing for those limited development projects. So that's sort of the medium, the medium part of the of the spectrum here. And then if you are if you decide to really lean in and you want to really get interested in the space, then you move down to the small fish, so to speak. So those are the exploration companies, right? And it's easy once you start, you know, just looking around in the mining space. Um, there's lots of people who will... There's There are great examples of the kind of incredible wealth that a, that a fantastic new metal discovery can generate 
especially if it happens in a good market. But even if it happens in a not very good market, if it's a really good discovery. So it's pretty easy to get seduced, you might say, by that potential because there's a, there's just phenomenal stories. I mean, you and I on on our drives have talked about Great Bear, which is which is a re, which is the most recent standout story of success. I mean, this is a stock that in the space of three and a half years went from, you know, like it, it was a hundred bagger. It went from 20 cents to $20, was taken out by Kinross based on a very strong discovery that was very well advanced technically and in the market by a good team of people. And the reason that it did so well is because it was a phenomenal discovery. And that's what's so cool about investing in exploration. You take moose pasture and you turn it into millions of ounces of gold because you make a discovery. It's, it's really cool. But <laughs> there's a huge but, which is that it is very, very high risk, right? The vast majority of exploration projects do not become millions of ounces of gold. A huge number of the exploration teams out there don't really have what it takes in terms of geologic prowess or and or capital markets abilities. So they either can't raise the money and sell the story or they can't use the money to find the metal in the rocks. Um, there, there's a lot of challenge out there. But, I, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Since we're on to this stage of, uh, let's call it a presentation, I heard Rick Rule one time talk about the failure rate of exploration companies, uh-huh. and I don't remember what it is. And again, a lot of my friends are getting really interested in this space, and I try to remind them of that number, but I'm like, I can't remember. So what is the failure rate do you know of an exploration company? Well, I, I mean, I, there, there's a couple different numbers that are thrown around out there because it all depends, obviously, what your what the structure is of the, of the way you account it. But I mean, is one in one hundred drilled projects does that turn into a um, standout success? It's probably lower than that. If you want, and and standout success is a bit of a nebulous term. Does that mean something that works in the stock market for a while, but then maybe comes off again because the metals moment ends? If you want to talk about drilled projects that turn into gold mines, oh gosh, it's probably one in many hundreds. Yeah, that, okay. It's low. It's really low. It's really low. But I think what's important to remember is that you don't invest in an exploration project because you want to own that stock when that project becomes a mine. That is not why you buy an explorer. Yeah, you'll be bankrupt pretty quickly. You'll be bankrupt, and you'll also be like way too old to care anymore. <laughs> like These things take so long, so long. The fastest yeah. that a project can move from sort of discovery to production is a decade. And many of them take multiples of that if they get there. The reason that you buy an exploration stock is for the the surge of value that happens when dis, upon discovery, and then that continues for a while as discovery becomes as a discovery demonstrates that it is a deposit of merit. That there's there's a period of time there where there's incredible value creation. Because you make a discovery, 
and then they keep drilling it and it shows that it has the that it is a deposit of merit and that's awesome and then it goes into this whole very long time frame of economic studies and engineering and probably some metals bear markets and everything gets forgotten and then permitting and it takes forever and maybe at some point down the road it becomes a mine but you don't buy an explorer to own it until it becomes a mine you buy an explorer for the potential to be part of incredible wealth value wealth creation if a discovery happens did great bear get to a resource estimate a, feas- so, a feasibility study, or did they get taken out before some of those things happened? Oh, what a feasibility study was like not even so they did not even create a resource estimate, which, <laughs> is, which is, I mean, a bit unusual. Often, I would say takeouts wait until there's at least a resource estimate, but that's a bit, it's kind of neither here nor there because they got bought out by Ken Ross. And whenever a company is considering making an offer to a junior miner, they they sign a non-disclosure agreement and they go into the data room. So Kinross went into Great Bear's data room. And I can guarantee you Kinross built its own resource estimate for what yeah. Great Bear had, right? So Kinross knew what it thought the numbers were. Um, it's just that the market didn't have a number for that yet because we, we don't all have teams of that geologists and resource modelers who are available to do those things for us. So <laughs> just as we've already touched on it, but... Um, the, when you got into it, cause you were in an early, you were an early financer of this. You were in an early private placement, were you not? I was, I think I got in at 24 cents or something do, like that. Do you remember the market cap of that race? Oh, it was nothing. It was, uh, it was less than 20 million, I think. Okay. I, All right. Yeah. Let's say, let's just say 20 million or yeah. well, let's say 10 million. Okay. So what was the, what did Kinross buy it out at? Oh gosh. Now I'm trying to remember 1.3 billion. One. Is that right? I don't know. It's something like that. Okay. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. And without, with, okay, cool. All right. Well, so, cause I know like someone sent me a question, like what's the next great bear, but we'll leave, we'll leave that to, to the Q and a. There's a ton, I've got a ton of questions here, by the way. Go ahead. Sure. Awesome. Lot, lots of stuff has, has come in. Um, okay. So I think you've done a good job breaking it down from the tier one assets uh, and, and producers. Um, into uh, the, the more riskier producers, smaller yeah. producers, developers, and into into the juniors. Anything else you want to say on the on the junior side? I mean, I could talk for an hour about about the junior side and how to approach building a mining portfolio on the junior side, but I'll just I'll just make a few comments. Um, the first is um, don't believe everything you hear. So if you wherever you get the notion that a particular company might be interesting. Obviously, it's worth taking a look at that, but don't believe everything you hear. There's a lot of, just like in any investment space, there's a lot of paid promotion. Um, there's a lot of uh, unsubstantiated claims, either from those who are invested and trying to pump the stock for their own reasons, or sometimes from the company itself, right? There's there's great teams out there and there, there's shady teams out there. So don't believe everything you hear. And then that leads to immediately to the question of like, well, how do I know what to believe? And that's where my next comment comes in, which is don't try and do it alone. Try and find some people that you can do it with, by which I mean, consider stocks, research stocks and make decisions about potential, about the potential for a stock. Those people might be, maybe your neighbor also wants to learn about mining. Maybe you have a broker who likes these sorts of investments and has some has some knowledge. Maybe you uh, subscribe to a newsletter writer who similarly has some knowledge. You you you're if you're newish, 
to the space and you go into the exploration side without people who can help you know what to believe and what not to believe, you're likely to end up in some bad stocks. And maybe you'll stumble into some good ones too. And I hope you do, but it's a complicated space. There's geology. Geology is not easy. There's lots of considerations about how many shares are out and how the financings are going to work and and what pressures the financings are putting on the share price and who's in the stock. And if it's a new company, what shell was used to create? Like there's a lot of things to consider. And so I would say if you're new, try to find a little army of people that you can sort of, maybe it's an online community. There's some great online communities out there. So see if you can find some people that you can talk to about this stuff um, because it's complicated. So let's, I'm going to get to some questions here, but Ray, when we're just in this little area here, please plug yourself because I, I, you have that community and you are one of those people that are very tapped into, uh, especially the Vancouver scene, but the mining scene overall. So you're going to know who the, who's in on these shells and when the promotes are happening and when there's probably an overhang of warrants on a stock. So please let everybody know where they can, you know, subscribe and follow you just, just now, if you don't mind. Well, Thanks for the opportunity. Um, my name is Gwen Preston. I, my, the easiest place to find me is my main website, resourcemaven.ca. Um, a maven is someone who has deep knowledge and likes to share it. So I'm a, I'm a maven of resources. Resourcemaven.ca. I write a weekly newsletter about what I'm buying, selling, and thinking in the metals and mining space. So it tracks my portfolio and I explain what I'm seeing, what I'm liking, what I'm not liking. Um, I, it's a paid subscription service. So people sign up for it and I'd never take money from companies for coverage. So it's, I, I, I do my work for my subscribers, not for the companies. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's okay. what I do. I also have a financing service for anybody who's interested in, in getting in on financings, but that, that really is on the high risk end of the spectrum. So, <laughs> so um, you know how the kind of spaces work. If you think Gwen is, is providing value, you can do it now, you can do it later, but please follow her on Twitter. She, obviously you can subscribe to her newsletter. Um, I am a big fan of paid for, um, newsletters if you find the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have someone that I follow in the uranium space. Yeah. Uh, the person has really helped guide me towards, you know, solid wealth creation. Um, you're another another one the another one of those individuals that I would I would pay for, um, and like I, there's maybe three others that I can think of, but 100% you can walk people through this process. I have got some really nice messages, so I'm going to say that I got a message from Casey saying, uh, "Listening in, I love Gwen's energy." Oh. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, say that, <laughs> and then uh, Chris said, "Good interview so far. I like Gwen." Um, and he had a question also. So he said, in terms of geopolitical risk, could you give us your favorite miners to insulate investors from political risk? Oh, that's okay. That's a good question. So let me just, I'll give a little comment on geopolitical risk first. And so classically geopolitical risk in the mining world has been considered um, only, people have only really considered it politically. Which, by which I mean like the risk that you won't get a permit, can't get a permit, that uh, locals living in the area won't let a mine, on, um, an operation function, or um, that the government doesn't support and um, 
stabilize mining. So maybe the government could even take the asset away because they want it, or there isn't security of mineral tenure and things like that. So it's been a very, classically, it was considered sort of a very um, political thing. Like, what is your asset secure as a miner? Going at, at these days... I mean, geopolitical risk uh, or location risk, I like to just call it location risk now because I think that's a more appropriate name, is really just about like, can you make it work? Um, and this, you know, so that, sorry, let me take a step back. That classic definition of risk, which really focused on like, is the government going to confiscate my asset and things like that, it really always the the answer to geopolitical risk was always to go to tier one jurisdictions. So invest in companies it operating in the United States or Canada. Um, those those were classic answers to that question. These days, location risk does not immediately mean that you should buy assets in the United States or Canada. Why? Because it is ridiculously hard to get permits to build mines in a lot of places in the United States and Canada. And or it can take forever just to, for example, get a permit to do a drill program if you're on forest service land in many parts in the United States. Geopolitical risk is a lot, it's quite nuanced. Um, but uh, I digress a little because that, that what I, the comments that I just made pertain more to the explorers and the developers than they do to the miners. And Chris was asking more about, excuse me, the mining companies and how to, uh, and what miners one might buy to insulate from geopolitical risk. So it's easiest then to sort of think of the places that right now one would want to be careful of and then how to avoid having exposure to them or which places you want to focus on. So a classic answer to the geopolitical, two classic answers to the geopolitical risk question on for, for good and bad are Kinross and um, Agnico Eagle. So Agnico Eagle is primarily got mines in tier one jurisdictions. A lot of its assets are focused in Canada. Um, they're well-established. Um, and it, it sort of has a, that, that is a classically strong company from a geopolitical risk standpoint. And that's great. That said, you do end up paying a bit of a premium because of that standing, because investors who are worried about geopolitical risk, and a lot of them are, rightfully so, lean into companies like Agnico. So that's one answer to that. On the not, um, on, on the, worse end of the geopolitical risk spectrum. You have companies like Kinross, who had lots of exposure to Russia. You have companies that have exposed, like, oh, sorry, that was a crazy noise. I don't know if you guys all heard that. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just sorry. There was a soundboard, the soundboard <laughs> option that came up and I just pressed it and that happened. That was sorry. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about, let's try this one if you make a good point. I like it. I like it. Right, By the way, um, I do have an infant um, son who is crying outside the door. So if you hear crying in a moment, it'll be my husband just bringing my baby in because he's hungry. So I will oh. apologize for the moment of crying. This is um, so good with spaces. It that doesn't matter. Yeah. I, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, here he is. 
So this is my baby. Uh, his name is Baden, and he is four months old. Yeah. And uh, I think he's hungry. So, but I can multitask. So that's cool. Okay. Yeah, do it. It's uh, it's it's nice to hear his voice. It's all good. Spaces <laughs> is so organic. Um, let me see if I got if there's a sound effect I can put in here. Uh, I'm just trying this out. There we go. Um. Okay, so while you're doing right. <laughs> Anyways, okay. I was gonna, it's on on the on the riskier geopolitical end of the spectrum. There's company. There's Kenros B two. Those are often considered riskier. You can on a. Those companies are often also less expensive on lots of metrics, like on a per ounce produced or you know, uh, enterprise value metrics. Will if you're looking for a company to position in ahead of a gold bull market, is it worth buying one that is undervalued for geopolitical risk? It might be because often investors throw geopolitical risk concerns to the wind when a gold bull market gets going. And so maybe there's more upside in those companies. I'm not telling you what to do, though. If you don't if you if you want to insulate from geopolitical risk there's lots of opportunities to do that yeah. okay i'm gonna try one more sound effect here wow hold on that's a I, that was supposed to be a drum roll i'm not feeling that one no okay. that was not a drum roll let me get to a couple more questions here uh so from mr walker question great space gwen and carl my question is around what Gwen's, what Gwen's strategy is for entering private placements in junior companies. Ooh, good question. Um, okay, so uh, a little bit of stage setting here. You know, the exploration business runs on private placements, by which I mean exploration companies don't make any money, but they spend a lot of money. So they rely on investors to give them that money, right? That's, it's all about financing. Um, and so they're always going out, raising money, then they'll go and do another exploration program. Ideally that program generates some good results and then they can go back to the market and say, look, we did what we said we were going to do now give us some more money so we can go and take the next step. That's how we hope it turns out. Of course, a lot of the time they put drills in the ground and it doesn't work or something, and then they have to, uh, keep financing. They always have to keep financing. Okay. So what are my tactics around private placements? So. Uh, the things that I look for when I'm approached with a private placement opportunity are the first is the same thing that I would look for in any company if I'm buying it in the market, right? Which is do, does management have a concrete plan for how to try to create new value in the company? And that's the, that's the question that I use to capture all of the things that management needs to be doing or to have a plan to be doing um, for me to have confidence in the thesis or the for me to have an investment thesis that that makes sense. So what are they going to spend the money on? Uh, it, do they have a very concrete plan to do that? Is, is it happening in a timely manner? Because guess what? Time is money. Um, that you can, what, what they're going to spend the money on gets into where is the project? What are the targets? What's the geologic theory behind the targets? How much confidence do I have in that theory, right? That, that gets into the weeds for sure. Um, but 
Do they have a clear plan for how to take this money that they're raising right now and do do their best to turn it into more value for the company? So that's the, do I like the investment thesis side of things? Then you have to get into some of these other pressures that the fact that that end up placed on exploration companies because they are so reliant on private placements. And those probably come down to share count and then the overall approach to and frequency of finances. So because companies have to finance a lot, they can end up with a lot of shares outstanding. And if you have a lot of shares outstanding, then it's harder to make the share price move. It's harder for good news to make this, to have a significant impact, right? If, if there's good news and a company only has 20 million shares out, um, a whole bunch of people read that news and they're all, they all want to buy one of those only 20 million shares and maybe not very many of them are available for sale. If a company has good news and it has 300 million shares out, well, the odds of being able to buy one of those shares um, is much higher just because the share count is loose. And so um, it just won't improve, it just won't boost the share price as much. So a tighter share count is always nicer. You also want to know, uh, it's nice to see good holders in that stock. So that means um, some other investors who you maybe tr- know and trust their opinion. And also you want to see that management and the board has a position. You, I want skin in the game. I do not want management and the board to own 1% of the stock. I want them to have a healthy exposure to the story that they're selling. So share account, uh, share registry, and then um, how much stock are they issuing relative to the amount of stock that they have out? And this matters uh, for a bunch of reasons, but one of the reasons that stands out is that in general, it's changing a little bit now because there's a new exception called the life exception that that takes this away, but not very many companies are doing it yet. So in general, when exploration, when junior companies issue new shares in a financing, those shares have a four-month hold. So you buy the shares in the financing, you can't sell them for four months. Four months plus one day later, everyone who participated in the financing can sell those shares. So you always, whether you're buying in a financing or buying in the market, you always want to see if there's a free trade date coming up. So is there, was there a financing less than four months ago? And if so, what's the share price today relative to the price of that financing? If the share price has gone up since the financing, it is likely to come back down close to the financing price um, as that free trade date happens because a whole bunch of investors who bought in the financing are going to say, yay, I can cap- I can lock in this gain and they're going to sell until there isn't that gain anymore. Can I, uh, I know you're, you're rifting really good here, Gwen. I love it. But, but, you know, we got a lot of people listening right now okay. and I'm, I want to get actually complicate this a little bit more. Okay. So, because what it, when you get into a private placement, I know that I like to try to figure out what groups are in. Because if there's some pretty, fis- uh, fis- I can't speak right now. If you've got some really savvy investors in there, <laughs> some institutions, there is such a thing as shorting a stock, unfortunately, mm-hmm. before it unlocks. 
So if someone has a substantial gain because they're an early uh, private placement holder and they went in there for the warrant, stock's gone up 3x, 4x, uh, 5x, they might be shorting the stock through a full service broker. Absolutely. And so that's, the, yeah, that's why this gets, like you say, this gets complicated. So I like to see sticky shareholders. So like I, I'm going to, I'm going to use uh, a company as an example. There's a company out there that I really like called Banyan Gold. B-Y-N is their ticker in case anybody is curious. Um, I, I'm using them as, a, as an example because I think that that management team has does a standout job of courting sticky shareholders. So not the kind of shareholders that you just described, who are the ones who are really doing the financing for the warrant, right? If they can clip a bit of a gain on the share price, then great. But what they really do is they put their money in the financing, they sell at equal, sometimes at a loss, sometimes at a gain, whatevs, and then they hold the warrant as their as their exposure to the stock. And if it does well, yay, they can get back in at their locked in low price. But that while that works for them, that doesn't work for the company. That doesn't support their share price. Um, and it lets them raise money because those people are putting money in, but it doesn't support their share price after the financing. What you want instead are shareholders who actually are interested in your story, who actually believe that you have the potential to make a discovery and want to have significant exposure to that discovery going forward. And that takes a lot of effort. You got to get out there, you got to market constantly, you got to keep a lot of shareholders engaged, you have, a, have to have a really good network um, to meet new shareholders. And so Banyan, I think, is a company that I think that does a very good job of that. And you might notice that they do non-brokered financings most of the time. So they don't even have a brokerage, they don't even have brokerage firms out there schlepping the stock out to whoever of their um, investors wants to buy it and clip the warrant, they really go out there and find their own list of investors. So yes, there's, there's a lot to, to navigate in those leads. Banyan is a good company. I like it. I actually interviewed them uh, in Vancouver I, and I picked the CEO up from her house and met her husband. She's fantastic. Shout out to Brody, uh, who's who's listening right now from Tuck Van Ventures. That was a great interview we did a few weeks ago, by okay. the way. Um, yeah. So yeah, financings and juniors get really complicated. There's even, we can even go down a little further on that. I thought that was a really good question that came in though. Totally. That was a great question. All right. Let me see what else we got here. Um, oh, and before I do that, I had another, so try to guess what, what this noise is. <laughs> you, uh, you want, I'm not kidding. You want to know what that noise is? It sounds it, like something like Super Mario Brothers. It does. But uh, the icon what I'm looking at is a stock chart going down. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Okay. What else do we got here? We had a couple questions come in here. Um, so Bolton says, what's Gwen's favorite gold producer? I think we covered that already. Well, I don't know if we've covered favorite gold producer because I am in the moderate to high risk part of the spectrum. I would say that right now my favorite gold producer is Orzone, which is a single asset miner um, operating in Burkina Faso. So anybody who's interested in the geopolitical risk side of things may not like that. But I like them because I think that they are one of the assets that is likely to get bought out during this gold bull market. So I think it offers the leverage to gold that every gold producer should offer as gold rises. But I also think that there's an upside there um, because I think it, it could well get bought. Okay. 
Uh, I just checked. We have 956 people listening. That's pretty cool. Amazing. Love um, it. Okay. Question came in from Corey Power. Uh, thanks for the space. What is Gwen's favorite mining jurisdiction in Canada? Oh, in Canada. Uh, so, I mean, the best... Mi- Quebec. Can I guess? Oh, yeah. you just, I was going to say Quebec. Were you going to say Quebec? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to operating in Quebec. And they are... Uh, in no particular order. They have incredible tax incentives. So it, a, a dollar goes a really long way for an exploration or mining company in Quebec. So that's really great. Um, they have these large institutions that whose job it is to support exploration and development in mining in Quebec. So they take big share positions. So it like it's like a gimme of sticky shareholders for companies operating in Quebec. Um, and there's great geology. Like right now there's a lithium boom. Uh, many of you are likely aware of Patriot, ba- Patriot Battery Metals. Been a stellar performer stock um, because of this hard rock lithium boom that's going on in Quebec. So Quebec is a great jurisdiction for sure. Others are good, but the, Quebec is a standout. Okay. Uh, another question came in from Mr. Carter. Cool spaces, learning lots. Gwen, would you hold physical gold versus Sprott? Uh, we actually already covered that. Yeah. Um, Both is the answer, really. Couple, couple of the same questions came in here. What's, what, what's the next Great Bear resources? Yeah. So, I mean, if I knew the answer to that, then I, then I would just put all of my money in that, and we would be done, right? <laughs> If only it were that simple. I mean, the really hard thing about exploration is that the great teams and great projects still fail, right? Because it's you just don't know what's under the surface. We have ways of trying to see. We have lots of geophysical techniques that we use to try and understand what's underneath the surface of a rock. And then we drill. Uh, but you just don't know until you drill. Um, and so before drilling, let me take a step back. Before drilling, you... Um, there's all kinds of sampling you can do on surface. You can sample soils, you can sample a little bit of the bedrock, you can sample, uh, float, which is like chunks of rock that are loose on the surface. Uh, you can do geophysical surveys. So you can do everything from magnetics to resistivity, to conductivity, to induce polarization. These are all uh, ways of trying to see how different rock types might be up against each other or how structures might exist within the rock. But at the end of the day, we just don't know what's down there. And so theory is theory and reality is reality. And you got to drill to find the reality. So exploration is just tough. And I have had lots of experience in my life being like, that looks like a really, really good target. Man, I really like that target. Um, And then it doesn't work. And that's just how it is sometimes. Uh, if I knew the next great bear, like I say, I wouldn't, uh, perhaps I wouldn't even be here, uh, because I would just be sitting and waiting for that 20 or for that hundred bagger to, uh, to pay out. There's a couple that I can mention that I like right now. Sanu gold S A N U is, um, is a, is an explorer that I quite like. They're in Guinea. They have, um, some really interesting, um, targets that they're just starting to test. This is early stage. It may take a couple rounds of drilling for anything to show up if it does. But I really like their targets. I like that all the work that they've done so far, they have a tight share structure and they have very significant um, management and board ownership. So it checks a lot of the back boxes. So that's one that I'll put out there. Um, another one that I'll put out there is Black Wolf. 
copper and gold. I think they've got a pretty cool target that they're going to drill this summer in uh, in Alaska, just across the border from BC. Um, I really like the look of that one. So those are two early, like untested exploration targets that look good. I am not saying that they're going to be. I'm, I'm not making any promises about them being the next great bear. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to try to do this. Hold on a second. Okay. All right. I don't know if that's cheesy. When I listen to the replay, I might be like, Carl, don't ever do that again. Um, <laughs> to, to find out. <laughs> okay. Whoa. My first spaces. Would you ever buy a coal company? I own a coal royalty company. Um, how's, that, own- how's that doing lately? Uh, it's doing well um, okay. because... Supply shortage? Yeah. I mean, coal is, first of all, is a little bit more complicated than most people originally think. And it's in, and it's supply demand fundamentals are stronger than most people think. So coal usage went, coal usage, thermal coal usage, that's what I meant to say, for heating, went up in 2022 and hit like a high that it has an all-time high or, yeah, like it went up. So that was a reality. Um, uh, supplies have been not increasing um, the way that they used to because there's all kinds of regulations against new coal mines. There's lots of just pushback against new coal mines. Uh, The metallurgical side of coal can't stop. Like we can't stop using metallurgical coal because it turns out that we we need that um, to make steel. So, you know, the, the coal space is, I think, more bullish than most people really, um, would know from uh, from 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 a, from twenty thousand feet, um, and so I own a company called Morian, which has a a great royalty on an underdevelopment, newly producing coal mine in Nova Scotia. Okay, I'm I'm actually kind of surprised. That's good. Um, oh, actually, you mentioned Rick Rule before. I listened to an interview with him not long ago, and uh, when somebody when he was asked if you could just own one. Um, asset class for the next five years. I'm pretty sure that was the way the question was phrased. What would it be? His answer was coal. No way. Yahweh. Yahweh. <laughs> I would have thought he would have said maybe uranium. Well, he said coal. coal. I, think he, I think he thinks coal is more um, Sort of, it's more robust, reliable, sustainable in its upward trajectory than uranium, which has this clear tendency to sort of spike and crash. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm putting my own thoughts on on Rick, which I pr- perhaps shouldn't do, but that's my that's my thought on those two uh, opportunities. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess the time horizon in which you said he likes coal, uranium maybe wouldn't fit into that. Um, Okay, uh, so I got another question here from James. Says, Gwen, why not just buy ETFs? Now, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know what? Yeah, why not just buy ETFs, Gwen? Well, I mean, that's what, when when I started describing the ends of the spectrum here, if you want exposure to gold now and maybe copper, silver, nickel, um, uranium, you know, a little bit down the road when we're when we're a little bit farther into this this pending recessionary storm. Um, but you don't want to spend a bunch of time learning about mining. You don't want the risk of exploration. You don't want 
to have to pay attention to news flow from companies in your portfolio? My answer was buy ETFs, buy ETFs of mining companies. I think that's a really good way of having exposure to the space. I think I give anybody who does that kudos because they've acknowledged, they've realized, they had the awareness to realize that there's a great opportunity in metals. And they also realized that, you know, they didn't want to bite off more than they could chew. They didn't want to get into risk and, and a whole bunch of learning. Um, ETFs are a great option. Yeah, I mean, and there's also two, three x leveraged ETFs too. Like when that when silver dipped down to the last summer, I bought a two x silver ETF. Yeah. My wife, my wife and I in our TFSA, and we killed it. Cool. Okay. Um, let me see if I can try one one more thing here. That's definitely a little cheesy. Okay, so somebody got, dramatic uh, is entering the conversation. Maybe that's a good one. But Elon's gonna get the. Uh, <laughs> the devs on these, you know, I like it, but we need a little, uh, we need some better ones. Okay. So uh, Gwen, would you ever invest in a junior exploration company with over 300 million shares outstanding? Uh, if, if it's a junior exploration company, so a company that is still like pre-discovery, no, I wouldn't. So that'd be a hard no. That's a hard no. Like I say, I, 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 I prefaced with that statement because I would invest in a company oh, that is sir. building a mine that yeah. has 300 million shares out or that is getting close to building a mine because it just takes a lot of financing to get to the point where you're ready to build a mine. So you can't require, you can't demand a very tight share structure from a company that has a very advanced asset. Those things are just incompatible um, but if it's a junior explorer co that doesn't hasn't made a discovery yet that has 300 million shares out no the first thing i do when someone suggests a stock to me that's a junior exploration company the first thing i do is check the share count okay um there's two more questions that i can see i'll get to but uh selfishly i'm just going to ask you uh <laughs> what's your thoughts on uranium right now because it's like one of my favorite investment thesis Currently. It's the most sideways thing out there, right? I get the uranium price, spot price sent to me every day. And I've like, I used to look every day to be like, oh, what's it done today? And it's basically unchanged or like a few cents up or down. It's just doing absolutely nothing right now. Um, so uh, I think, so I am bullish on uranium supply demand fundamentals. I don't think that there's enough uranium being produced. And I think in order to incentivize that production, we need a higher uranium price. Um, I think that there are so few good uranium stocks out there that when we do get a uranium price move, those stocks provide outsized leverage relative to other um, metals. So. When it happens, it can be really exciting in the uranium space. It is not happening now. And I think that is because um, we really need generalist interest to care about um, to care about growth. Uh, and at this point, that's not what's happening. At this point, we're all about recession and, and uncertainty. And so people aren't buying um, industrial growth, which is, and they certainly aren't buying sort of like, industrial growth with an emphasis on greening the world. Greening the world is whatever you think about it. It is a paradigm shift that is happening. And so I, I am positioning for 
the opportunities of that paradigm shift. Paradigm shifts erase old opportunities and create new ones. I want a position for those new ones because it is happening. Uranium is one of those. I just uh, started a new newsletter called Evergreen Investing with a colleague of mine, Peter Kraut. And uranium was the first topic that we discussed in Evergreen Investing because I think nuclear power is the clean baseload power source of the future. We can't have the lights turn off. That's not an option. And so uranium has to be worth more. But uranium isn't going to be worth more until generalists start coming into the space and get back into buying things like SPOT, which is the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Um, and that's going to send that trust into the spot market to buy up the rest of the pounds that are there. And that will keep the pressure building on uranium users, nuclear utilities, to start signing contracts and start driving the price up. And we just, we're just we just not there. We're just not quite in the moment. But the, the, the balls keep lining up and it's taking a frustratingly long time for it for, for anything to happen, but uh, I think we're getting close. I follow that sector well. You've covered it there pretty good. Um, okay, so Grace says, tell us what you think about carbon credits. Mm. That's a polarizing one. It is a polarizing one. Um, I think that the voluntary carbon credit market will be a dramatic opportunity for investors. Um, I don't know how quickly that opportunity will will develop, um, but it goes back to what I just said. The green transition is a paradigm shift. Paradigm shifts slow down when things get in the way, like pandemics and recessions, but they don't stop. They carry on. And so if we went back to pre-COVID, remember back then, 2019, these things were things, there was a lot of talk about carbon credits and about the opportunity that, that they were presenting. And then we had the pandemic and we had all the crazy stock market chaos that happened because of the pandemic. And then there's been all this worry about recession ever since then. And so um, I, I think that anything green investing has been a bit pushed to the sideline. It has, certainly has not been in the limelight since then. But Kind of like industrial metals, once we get to the other side of this storm, I think that and and investors start thinking positively about growth and the future and where things are going and how to position for that for that growing future. I think carbon credits are one of the things that are really going to work. And you just have to pay I think you just have to pay attention to the news to see the paradigm shift in action and to see how many companies out there, how many companies out there say that they are working towards net zero by choose a date 2040 2050 whatever it is these are like oil companies and pharmaceutical manufacturing companies they can't they can't reduce their way to zero they have to buy their way to zero now with carbon credits you certainly have to be careful the quality of the carbon credits that you are getting exposure to um, and you need to have some expertise on your side um, but i do think that it's going to be a major opportunity Thank you for that, Gwen. I did have a DM come in from Streethawk, is his uh, is his name. Mm. What does Gwen think of Hecla? Also, um, can I ask you about Snowline Gold? Snowline Gold has a discovery. Yeah. Uh, they're lighting up that area. But let's start with Hecla. I mean, I don't have a huge... I'm not... 
particularly familiar with Hecla, so I actually don't really have much that I can say about Hecla. Sorry to disappoint on that. Um, it's not a company that I follow, so I don't I don't think I have an opinion to share there. I do know Snowline very well, though, so I'm one for two. Um, <laughs> so Snowline Exploration Company has made a significant gold discovery um, in Yukon in northern Canada. Um, the interesting thing about Snowline's discovery, which is called the Valley Discovery, is that uh, there's a couple interesting things about it. Um, it is very large. We don't have a number for it yet. There hasn't been a resource estimate yet, but you can ballpark the numbers by seeing, you know, how how wide and long and deep the zone is, and then sort of taking an average grade. And it's pretty easy to see millions of ounces there already. The thing is, it is in the middle of nowhere. There are no roads anywhere near. You would have to build 100 kilometers of road to get to this mine. So that just means that the bar for success is very high. This thing has to be enormous for it to work. The way that I played Snowline is that I invested when I saw that it was getting pretty exciting and I wrote it up and then I have already exited actually. Um, because I think that there is a surge of excitement when a discovery is, you know, opening up, if, like just debuting. And then reality can sometimes, can often sort of get in the way of that excitement. And that's probably a good thing because reality, you know, is the is real. Um, and so Snowline may well have the many millions of ounces that it's going to need to work in the location that it's in, but we are going to know that for quite some time. And I wasn't willing to just sit in the stock and wait and see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will go higher sometime soon, but really good company in so far as the way that they interact with the, uh, the, the way they engage with their shareholders, the way they engage with the local communities, the, the technical prowess of management, um, their communications. I really have I hand it to that management team for their approach, how they built the company and the discovery that they made. Um, and we shall see if it ends up big enough to make it in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Uh, we're getting close to wrapping this up. Let's say another 10 to 15 minutes. I did an interview with a company called Rakla. Uh, they're going to go give it a shot out there close to the snow line discovery. Yeah. There's, um, they're, yeah, there's a couple that are, and there's another, um, High Gold is also spinning out um, its assets that are in that area as well into a new company that are also, and they're going to go out and uh, and look for the same. It's kind of a new geologic idea for that part of the world. So uh, yeah. yeah, yep. Okay, so what do you think of potash? I don't really have a thought on potash right now. I had thoughts on potash. A year ago, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and then um, you know it's it's done fine, um, but uh, I haven't been paying a lot of attention lately, to be honest. So I'm sorry to disappoint on that question. So this one's a little bit of an awkward question. <clears throat> if you don't have to answer it, if you don't want to, but um, what are some of the bad companies? Really <laughs> and you don't have to answer it. It's up okay. to you. I can answer that very easily without naming. I don't have to name and shame particular companies, but I can tell you what to look for um, to to identify bad companies. That's that's a perhaps even a more useful way of answering the question. Um, <clears throat> I think the, uh, there's some very easy things to look for, like how much does management pay itself. Um, there's no 
goal. There's no rules in that space, but like the, you know. Well, no, hold on. I, I really would like to get a number off you because <laughs> honestly, when I call companies, I ask that question and, you know, I've, lo- I've, I've made some enemies there, right? I'm like, wow, that's a pretty egregious salary. What's a, what's a decent salary for a CEO of an exploration company? I, oh, I mean, <laughs> I know, right? I'm going to make some enemies here, but. Well, you don't have to call them out. I'm just saying like. No, they, I know. They're burning cash, right? So I mean, it should, de- it should not be above 200,000. 150 is like these. <sighs> yeah. And once, especially if it's pre-discovery. Once there's some momentum and some merit to the story and they're raising money and, you know, being the CEO of a company that is advancing a new discovery, uh, that's a very consuming job. And so, you know, if you're, if you've made a good discovery and you're pouring yourself into it, you should get compensated for that. But being the CEO of a pre-discovery exploration company it should not have a rich compensation for sure. Okay, so, let's get... I, I got it. Yeah. Press you here. So you get so you get a deal sent to you, right? Founders round, no seed round, whatever. They do their first round, uh, going public. They have an exploit. They've got a bunch of targets. They're going to go and hit those targets, right? Mm-hmm. What's an egregious amount at that point in the company? Maybe there's only twenty five million shares outstanding. What's uh, what, what's an egregious amount? I mean. I mean, I think above 150 for that would be, I would, I would not like to see that because it's just, I mean, yeah, because there's just, there's, I don't want to say that they, there's nothing there yet because it takes a lot to come up with the idea and find the projects and put it all together. There's a huge amount of background work that happens, but that's what the seed round is for. You do this, if you decide to set up a company then you're doing it because you believe in the opportunity and you're getting the you're getting very significant exposure to it because you got seed round opportunity. You shouldn't be doing it for the salary. Um, and I know that's tough because you know you gotta buy groceries and pay the mortgage and things like that. But it's um it's hard to raise money for pre-discovery stories. It's hard. And so if you can only raise million, but you have a few people on salary who are all making $150,000 to $250,000, that money disappears way too fast. And then the story will never go anywhere. So when you want to talk about who's like, what are bad companies, it's really the ratio of money raised to G&A. Yes. Right? I think that's the biggest red flag for what we call a lifestyle company. If they're not raising much more than they're spending on staying listed, paying for their office, paying to go to some trade shows and paying their salaries, they they are not creating any new value and stay very clear of that situation. Yes. Now, I may like the stake, but you're also not getting new shareholders or creating value by buying someone a $300 stake in Vancouver. It's <laughs> just true. Throwing it, right? Just throwing it out there. I'm <laughs> just saying. Okay. But I do like the stake, though. Um, okay. So I think, I think we're going to, um, like leave it there, Gwen. It's been an amazing space. It's, um, right now there's around almost a thousand people still here and that's, that's awesome. I, but we've been close to an hour and a half and yeah. 
you know, you've got a, a four month old and you've given us a lot of your time. And at the end of the day, we can do this again and we don't have to wait too, too long. I mean, where we are in the markets and all the things that are going on, there's so much stuff to talk about. Absolutely. I've, this has been a really fun conversation. I love the questions. I'm, I'm, I love that there's this many people who are, who are tuning in. It's exciting for me to, uh, to be part of it. So thanks for the opportunity and I'm happy to join you again sometime soon. Thank you. So last thing I'll say is, again, if, if, if you think Gwen has some value, which we all know she does, please give her a, f- a follow. That's a big part of Spaces. Um, and then, Gwen, we'll leave it to you. Plug yourself, please. Thanks so much. Um, yep. Resourcemaven.ca. That's where you can uh, see what I do. You can sign up for my newsletter. You can see how to get a hold of me. Um, everything's there at resourcemaven.ca. Thanks so much, everyone. Awesome, awesome. You can find this uh, on Twitter once it once we're finished. It'll be up there as recorded, and we also put it on Spotify, Apple Music, and we might throw it up on our website as well, at FTM Invest on any social media handle. Please follow us there for various updates. Uh, I post my morning drives there and spaces as well. Thanks for joining us, Gwen. Very uh, uh, Again, appreciate your time, and we'll just leave it here. Thank you. <laughs>